0: The following is a message by Joel Bain, the lead pastor at Grace Family Church in St. Catherine, Jamaica. To learn more about Grace Family Church, visit gracefam.church. So after many months, we've reached the end of our journey through the Gospel of Mark. And that certainly should be celebrated as an achievement. God has faithfully guided us as we, your pastors, have preached through this text. And throughout, we've been helped by your encouragement and your feedback and your questions. We have all taken this particular journey with joy as we followed the Son. Today will be our 55th and final message in this wonderful gospel. So if you're here for the first time today, you only miss 54 messages in the gospel of Mark. So please turn with me then to Mark chapter 15. This past week, I went to renew my fitness certificate uh, for our car. And in years gone by, of course, that process would mean I'd be gearing myself up, trying to prepare for whatever's going to happen. Is the guy going to look at me and tell me that some random thing that I did not notice is wrong with the car and send me away and not pass the car at that point in time? And even if I get past that stage, how long will I have to wait? that little blue paper but thankfully uh, I'm I'm happy to report that I was in and out of there in no time now I can't promise you the same experience if you go but I am definitely grateful for it so when I heard them call my license plate number at first I didn't recognize it because he called the sequence of numbers differently than I would have called it and then I didn't expect him to call it so quickly I wasn't waiting for it couldn't have been 10 minutes I was waiting Uh, So, you know, I kind of went up belatedly when he was about to walk back into the office to say, oh, yeah, that's that's mine. And he looks at me and he's like, what kind of vehicle? So I quickly try to recall the make and model of my vehicle and I tell him the make and model and then he hands me the certificate. You know, it was a very simple form of authentication. You know, not foolproof by any means, but enough to seek to ensure that I did, in fact, drive that vehicle there that day. When you stop and think about it, our lives are filled with many interactions in which authentication is necessary. Now, it, it, it irks me that to do certain transactions here in Jamaica, whether with the government or with private financial institutions in particular, you can be required to bring two forms of ID. It particularly would irk me when my passport would still have a little teenage picture in it you know, and you're bringing this, you're a big man, now, and you're bringing this passport that you only use to travel and, and the person is snickering while they're looking at your ID. Um, you know, and I realize, you know, we are a low-trust, bandula society, so, you know, uh, it, it, but it still feels like a, a bother to have to do all of that. Uh, but these days, we're getting used to the fact that to sign into online accounts, you're increasingly required to verify that it's really you, even if you have the username and pass, password, by, you know, responding to a message on your phone or something like that. Authentication is necessary in a fallen world because, especially around things of great importance and value, you can't simply take somebody at their word. But the need for authentication is anything but a modern one. And here at the end of the Gospel of Mark, we're going to see a thoroughgoing interest in authentication. Our author is going to present us with what undoubtedly is the most astounding claim that has ever been made that Jesus, whom we saw crucified in in the previous message last week, rose again from the dead. But Mark does not simply expect us to take him at his word. So he tells the story with a steady focus on authentication, how we can know that what he's telling us really happened. Here in Mark 15, uh, or starting in Mark 15, we'll be reading from verse 40 through to verse 8 of chapter 16. As we make our way through this passage, this is the big idea that we're going to encounter. Jesus, who was crucified, rose again, demonstrating that his word can be fully trusted. The claim of the resurrection is mind-boggling, yet it is an indispensable part of of the good news about Jesus that Mark has been proclaiming. Mark is not presenting this account as a fable, as, as a kind of inspirational fairy tale. In this passage, he will carefully lay out an account of the aftermath of Jesus' death, presenting these incredible and world-shaking events as credible facts, witnessed by named persons. And contained within this story is the truth that, because of the resurrection, disciples of Jesus can live securely in the expectation that Jesus will always keep his word to us. Jesus, who was crucified, rose again, demonstrating that his word can be fully trusted, But even before I read this passage, we have a problem that we need to deal with. I did say that this is the last message in this series, but if you've looked ahead in your Bibles, you would have seen that Mark 16 has more than eight verses. It goes actually up to verse 20. So please permit me in a sort of extended introduction to explain why we are ending this series at verse 8. So the shortest possible answer is that we're ending this series at verse 8 because we agree with the virtually unanimous scholarly consensus that verses 9 to 20 were not originally a part of Mark's gospel. Most of your Bibles, if you look at them, will have in them between verse 8 and verse 9 a little note telling you something like, you know, the earliest manuscripts omit verses 9 to 20. What we've found Uh, particularly within the last hundred years, with the discovery of older manuscripts than we had access to uh, before, manuscripts that were closer to the time when Jesus walked the earth, is that the most reliable of these older manuscripts don't include these verses. And the way this section is written differs vastly in style and vocabulary from the rest of Mark's gospel. No, there's nothing in these verses that's unbiblical, even though the whole snake handling and drinking poison deal um, has resulted in some very dangerous practices among some very misguided people. The fact is, on close examination, it's pretty clear that these verses are a mosaic of teaching gleaned from the other three gospels and the book of Acts. So all the events they talk about happened, but they've kind of composed it together and said, oh, well, this happened and that happened next and that happened next. So what what we... happened is that as early as the second century, people struggled with the abrupt ending of this gospel and thought that audiences would be served by filling out the story. So they're a bit like uh, a, a later addition to Mark's original film or even like a post-credit scene for an audience hungry to see an ending that they were already familiar with. What we're left with is this. Mark either ended in a peculiar way in verse 8 or the original ending was lost very soon after it was written. Now, scholars are divided over those two opinions, and this week I read pages and pages and pages of back and forth arguments, just weighing the strength and the weakness of each of those positions, and I want to spare you from all of that. Now, if there's a missing ending, well, we don't have it, so I can't preach it. And God, in His providence, has chosen for that to be the case. So, from a pastoral standpoint, I'm left with two choices. I could preach all the way to verse 20, knowing that that is not how the gospel ended or I could preach to verse 8, knowing that that could very well be exactly how Mark wanted his gospel to end. So I'm going to do the latter, but I should add that as I've studied this quite a bit, I'm I'm, I'm very inclined to take the view that Mark has served us with an unusual but brilliant and provocative ending. Now if you have any questions about any of that, uh, feel free to talk to me afterwards. I want to end my comments about this with wise counsel from Mark Strauss, who who is one of the commentators who has journeyed with us and and has been of great help to us throughout this series. He says, It's easy to get bogged down in the complex questions related to the ending of Mark and miss the historical and theological assertion that is crystal clear. Jesus of Nazareth has risen from the dead. The Messiah has been vindicated by God, confirming that he is indeed the Son of God, God's agent of redemption, whose death paid the ransom price for sins. Whether or not the gospel originally ended at verse 8, the resurrection is an assured fact for Mark and his readers. So the resurrection is what we want to be focused on, to gaze with wonder and in worship as we read God's holy word here in Mark 15, from verse 40 to 16, verse 8. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene, and Mary the mother of James the younger, and of Joseph, and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him, and there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And when evening had come, since it was a day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea a respected member of the council who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have died, should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud and taking him down, "'wrapped him in the linen shroud "'and laid him in a tomb that, has been cut, "'that had been cut out of the rock. "'And he rolled a stone "'against the entrance of the tomb. "'Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, "'saw where he was laid. "'When the Sabbath was past, "'Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, "'and Salome bought spices "'so that they might go and anoint him. "'And very early on the first day of the week, "'when the sun had risen, "'they went to the tomb.' Having already given you a needed extended introduction, I'm especially eager to go right into this text. So here's how we're going to do this. I've given five titles to the scenes in this amazing account to help us to consider what each adds to the whole. They're not points per se, so I won't list them now, but I think that they're going to serve you as landmarks as we make our, our way through this uh, or final journey through this text. Let's begin with the women watching from a distance and we're going to be focused on verses 40 and 41 of chapter 15. So look in your bibles at verse 40. This is still the afternoon when Jesus died. Mark is going to pan his camera from the foot of the cross where the Roman centurion gave this this monumental confession of Jesus as the son of God to focus now on a group of onlookers some distance from the cross. He brings our attention to a group of women Women have been visible in this gospel in a way that was countercultural for stories from that time. We've met many of them. We've met Peter's mother, we've met Jesus's mother, a woman suffering from chronic bleeding, a little girl whom Jesus raised from the dead, a Gentile woman with bold faith, and most recently a poor widow giving at the temple, and a woman who anointed Jesus with expensive perfume, as he said, in preparation for his burial. Here at the end of this gospel, women are going to take an even more prominent role, and three of them will be named. Mary Magdalene, another Mary who was the mother of Joseph, and James the younger, which also meant smaller, so it was probably a reference to his height, and Salome. It's very unusual in the gospel of Mark for him to give names of characters who are not major characters, even when they're interacting with Jesus. So it's always very significant when he does this. These women were present for Jesus' death the significance of that is seen in who wasn't his male disciples. In Mark's account, they run from the scene of Jesus's arrest, and they never take the stage again. But not everyone deserted Jesus. Mark now tells us that these three women and several others had followed Jesus since Galilee, that is, since the beginning of his ministry, all the way to the cross followed is the language of discipleship, and it would have been shocking in a Jewish context for Mark to use such language in association with women. Other rabbis, you see, would only welcome male disciples. Mark adds that they ministered to him, meaning they cared for his needs as he traveled and taught. Way back at the end of chapter 3, when Jesus' mother and brothers came looking for him to shut down the madness that was his ministry, Jesus pointed out that the people who were already around him that day, listening to his teaching, those who do the will of God were his mothers and brothers and sisters. So these women were followers and family as far as Jesus was concerned. Mark has focused on on, on the journey and often the failing of Jesus' inner circle of 12 men. He's done that to serve us so that we don't assume that the gospel is easy to get and run self-confidently towards ruin. But here at the end, he presents these women as positive, though imperfect examples of discipleship. They remain devoted to Jesus all the way to the bloody end. And as we'll see, they mean to render him what they think will be one last service. Mark is going to refer to the two Marys in this text by name three times and to Salome twice. He's spotlighting them. He's presenting them as eyewitnesses to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. In doing so, he's signaling that these events really happened, that this is a a historical account and not a myth. He's citing his source for the story, much like you learn in school that when you're writing a paper, you need to put your footnotes and your bibliography and cite your sources so that your work can be checked. Tim Keller points out that these women must have still been alive when Mark wrote his gospel. So he was essentially saying, if you want to check the story, if you want to verify that things really went this way, just go talk to one of the Marys or Salome. Now, here's what's interesting. No movement trying to gain momentum would present women as the only eyewitnesses to such a pivotal moment. You see, that would immediately undermine his credibility back then. Among the Jews, women were not seen as reliable witnesses and they could not testify in a court case. And the Greek perspective is perhaps best represented by Celsus, who was a second-century philosopher and an outspoken critic of Christianity. So he, he would just love to needle Christianity for all the things he saw as weaknesses. And in his writings, he argues that Christianity cannot be true because the accounts of the resurrection relied on the testimony of women. And here's what he says. And we all know that women are hysterical. His words, not mine. But here's what this means. And men, do not take that. You're not not imitating Celsus. We imitate Jesus, not Celsus. But here's what all of this means. No one would report this story this way unless this was the way it happened. So what God did in his providence served to elevate women while authenticating the resurrection accounts. As 1 Corinthians 27 to 29 says, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human might boast in the presence of God. Mark now turns his attention to the next scene. And much like he did on the way to the cross, he introduces a new, unexpected character. This scene will entitle The Burial of Jesus. Our focus is on verses 42 to 46 of chapter 15. Here we're going to meet Joseph of Arimathea. Much like Simon of Cyrene, whom we met on the way to the cross, Joseph appears in the story once and then disappears. But much like Simon, he has much to say without being given any lines. Mark presents him in a very positive light. He's a respected member of the council, uh, the same Jewish council, however, that condemned Jesus to death. But it goes to show that not all the leaders were against Jesus. And Joseph... Mark says, was looking for the kingdom of God, the same kingdom that Jesus was preaching about. So at the very least, he would have been drawn to Jesus' message. The timestamp, evening or approaching evening, and the particular date was, the day before the Sabbath, explained the urgency of Joseph's actions. You see, it's late Friday afternoon. As most of you would know, the Jews on the Sabbath, they rest and the Sabbath begins at sundown on Friday evening. So, the law would have prohibited burying Jesus after sundown or during the next day. There was another law in Deuteronomy that required the bodies of executed victims to be buried before nightfall. It was a curse on the land to have the bodies hanging overnight there. So, Here's Joseph now, and his position on the Jewish council would have secured him an audience with Pilate, the Roman governor. But it still would have taken great courage to associate himself with Jesus, who was executed as an enemy of the state uh, at the initiative of Joseph's political colleagues who accused Jesus of blasphemy. So you can imagine this this scene now. Joseph is coming in. Here he is. He's a member of the same council that condemned Jesus. And he's going to Pilate to say, "Can, can you grant me the body? to bury him. And he, he, he's risking his political career. Now, what Mark is going to do in this section for us is he's going to give us a lot of details. He's going to detail Joseph's request to be granted Jesus' body for burial. He's going to detail Pilate's surprise at the request. You see, as we saw last week, Jesus died a lot quicker than crucified men normally do. He's going to detail Pilate's consultation with the centurion on how Jesus' body was taken down from the cross and wrapped in a shroud and laid in a tomb. Now, what I want to remind you of at this point is that Mark has a tendency to be very economical with details. So, he, he described the crucifixion saying, and they crucified him. So, why has he chosen to describe the burial at such length? Here's the key takeaway. Jesus really died. Now, that should be obvious since that's the goal of an execution. But when you claim that somebody rose from the dead, and that claim looks really compelling, people can begin to question the fact of the death. They can try to explain away the resurrection as a resuscitation, claiming that there was no death in the first place that required a miracle. So once again, Mark is authenticating his account. Jesus' death was verified by Joseph, a respected member of the council, largely populated by Jesus' enemies. Again, if you're going to invent a witness, why would you attempt to associate him with the very body that condemned Jesus? Many of those who are on that council would still have been alive when Mark wrote this account, and they could refute this story if it was false. Further, Jesus's death is confirmed to Pilate by the centurion, a specialist in execution. Finally, Jesus's death is certified by Pilate. So, it's as if Mark is presenting us with a literary death certificate for Jesus of Nazareth, signed by his executioner, stamped by the government officer, and witnessed by a representative of the funeral home. Jesus died. There's no room here for skeptical attempts to suggest that he lost consciousness and somehow recovered in the tomb. But you see, this is not just about apologetics, it's about life changing theology. Mark's forensic statement of Jesus' death paves the way for the rest of the New Testament to explain and celebrate the significance of Jesus' death. So as we stand at the foot of the cross with these women staring at Jesus' battered and broken corpse being lowered from the cross, we need to remember the kindness of God to us through his death. Hebrews 2, which we read a section of earlier, teaches us that by the grace of God, Jesus tasted death for us. As Christmas approaches, we're gearing up to celebrate the incarnation of Jesus, his becoming flesh. This scene reminds us that the purpose of the incarnation was Jesus' death. By his death, Jesus destroyed the devil's power over us as we sang this morning by removing the condemnation that we deserved, freeing us from being captive to the fear of death. Haven't you felt the fear of death around you this past year? Haven't you felt just the tension that comes because of the pandemic and and, and because of the, the crime waves we've seen as just people are just almost petrified, just so desperate to hold on to this life. But Jesus frees us from the fear of death. Here at the cross, we are not merely spectators. We're not merely watching Jesus' body from a distance. We are in this story. If you are a Christian, you died on that Friday afternoon. Romans 6 teaches us that baptism signifies or participation in Jesus' death. In it, we act out spiritual realities. This is Romans 6, 3, and 4. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Because we died with Jesus that day, we can live new lives, not on the basis of willpower, but on the basis of resurrection power. The details of that resurrection are what we turn our attention to next. As Mark pans his camera back to the women. So focus your attention on the last verse in chapter 15. Our title for this scene is, Who Will Roll the Stone Away for Us? So we're looking at chapter 15, verse 47 through to 16, verse 4. Mark notes in verse 47 that the two Marys had observed Jesus' burial, so they knew which tomb his body had been put in. Now if you're going to understand this part of the story, it's going to help you to know something about the sort of tomb that Jesus was laid in. A couple of years ago, Sam and I had the opportunity to visit New Orleans. Uh, I've mentioned this visit before, but what I didn't mention uh, when I spoke about it the first time was that one of the stops on our bus tour was, uh, we did a bus tour through the city, and one of the stops was at a cemetery. Now, I don't understand if that sounds weird to you, but it was actually quite fascinating and not that creepy. The unusual thing about cemeteries in New Orleans is that they bury their dead in above-ground tombs. On our tour, we were told why. Much of New Orleans is below sea level, and like, the water table is very high. So you dig, and you don't go very far, and you start, to, you start to see water. So what would happen early on is that you'd bury Grandpa below the ground, and there'd be a rainstorm, storm, and that airtight coffin would just pop right out of the ground. So Grandpa's back, and not in a way anybody wanted So eventually, the residents of New Orleans adopted the Spanish custom of using burial vaults instead of putting coffins in the ground. The residents of Jerusalem also had a custom of burying their dead above ground in limestone caves cut out of the hillside. They've discovered hundreds of these types of tombs around Jerusalem. Cut into the shape of the tomb would be a stone bench or a kind of shelf, and the corpse would be wrapped and laid on this bench, and then the tomb would be sealed with a large stone. When the body decomposed, the stone would be removed and the bones now would be placed into a box. This way, a tomb could be used for the burial of multiple members of the same family. From other Gospels, we learn that the tomb that Jesus was laid in was a new tomb that Joseph of Arimathea had bought for his own family. On Saturday evening, after the end of the Sabbath, the women prepared to visit the tomb the next morning. Once again, Mark details their preparation their early morning visit, and the concern that they discussed as they traveled to the tomb. Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? Mark gives us a note that the stone was very large, implying that it was too heavy for three women to push out of the way. But when they arrived at the tomb, the stone had already been moved. Okay, that's a, that's a fascinating story, but what's the point? Every detail points to the fact that these women were not expecting Jesus to rise from the dead. No one was expecting Jesus to rise from the dead. One of the consistent accusations made against early Christians is that they made up the story of the resurrection. But once again, this doesn't read like a story concocted to convince. Jesus had repeatedly predicted his suffering, death, and resurrection on the third day. This is now the third day. The Jews would number part of the day as a whole. So so we're now at the third day from Friday, Saturday, Sunday morning. Yet in the account of the resurrection, none of his inner circle is present. And the women who visited the tomb came to perform one last act of love, to anoint Jesus' dead body, not to meet the risen Lord. Surely a fictional account would present the disciples in a more positive light. I mean, they've taken a battering through this whole gospel of Mark. Come on, can't you picture it with me? Peter rallies the guys, gets them together and says, Hey guys, you know we've really struggled as disciples. But Jesus said he was going to rise again on the third day. And, you know, the, the theme music starts to swell. And you see them slow-mo walking into the garden together. And it's, you know, the, the sunrise is breaking out. And Jesus is silhouetted in, in the sunrise. And they're like, Master. I mean, come on, if you're writing fiction, you're going to make these guys look good. Nowadays, people assume that the resurrection could, could, could not have happened without even examining their accounts. That's because as spiritual as Western culture can be in some ways, we are deeply skeptical about the supernatural. And we assume that ancient people were just simply gullible. But that's not true. Tim Keller points out, the resurrection was as inconceivable for the first disciples as impossible for them to believe as it is for many of us today. The Greeks did not believe in resurrection. In the Greek worldview, the afterlife was liberation of the soul from the body. For them, resurrection would never be a part of life after death. As for for the Jews, some of them believed in a future general resurrection when the entire world would be renewed. But they had no concept of an individual rising from the dead. The people of Jesus' day were not predisposed to believe in resurrection any more than we are. Yet if you examine Mark's account and suspend unbelieving assumptions, it rings true. And it makes sense of the rapid growth of Christianity throughout the whole Roman Empire and the fact that these Christians were willing to face death for their allegiance to Jesus. There were dozens of other messianic movements in the decades preceding and following Jesus, and every one of them disintegrated after the death of the leader. So why didn't Christianity? Because our leader didn't remain in the tomb. The women came to that tomb looking for Jesus, But they met someone they were not expecting to meet. Our next scene is the young man sitting in the tomb. We're looking at verses 5 to 7 of chapter 16. Now, in my opinion, far and away the most surprising and interesting character in this account is the young man whom the women met when they stepped into the tomb. Already it's strange that the stone is not in front of the entrance of the tomb. Now, the stone was there because the body is going to decompose and nobody wants that smell coming out. So, I can imagine the trepidation that they felt as they entered. But I'm not building this up as if it's a horror film. You see, they had already seen the horror of Jesus' death on the cross. The worst and best that they're expecting is to find his body inside, wrapped in a linen shroud that Joseph had wrapped it in when he laid the body in the tomb two nights before. Nobody's expecting a young man in a white robe. The detail that the woman reported, that he was sitting on the right side, corroborates the authenticity of the account. I mean, it smells much more like a recollection than a fabrication. Understandably, the women are alarmed. I mean, who is this young man? Mark doesn't tell us, but he starts to give us clues. He's dressed in a white robe. He likely relates the story this way because that's the way the woman reported it. But it's when the young man speaks that our suspicions that he's a divine messenger are strengthened. Do not be alarmed. In the Bible, that's pretty much the first thing an angel always says, because clearly seeing an angel is terrifying. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. This young man, whom these women are meeting for the very first time, knows exactly who they came looking for. And he speaks of Jesus of Nazareth, whom they had followed since Galilee. Jesus, whom they had seen crucified. The person who rose was the same person they knew who had died. When we lived in Louisville during our pastoral training, the Taylors and Baines lived in the same apartment block. So this is kind of long block, and it had four entrances, which looked pretty much identical. Uh, The entrance to our apartment was a short walk from theirs. One day, one of the Taylor kids mistakenly walked to the wrong entryway beyond Oars and walked right through the open door that they thought was Oars into an apartment. But the person that they met looked nothing like the black Jamaicans they were expecting to find. And they kind of made a horrid, and I think apologetic retreat, and I think they ran all the way to our apartment. The words of the angel here eliminate the possibility that must have crossed the minds of these women in their bewilderment. They had entered the wrong tomb in error. Their dress, in fact, was right. But Jesus had only been a short-term tenant. He has risen. It's one word in the original Greek. The most unimaginable, unbelievable news given in the most matter-of-fact way. He's not here. He was, though. The angel invites them to observe the bench where Jesus rested for two nights. He really died. He really was laid there. But he got up, shaking off death itself, and he's already gone. But he left a message for those women. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. This short message given to these women is bursting with hope and comfort. Remember, we have heard nothing of these disciples since they abandoned Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. We've heard nothing of Peter since his tragic denial of Jesus at his trial before the Jewish leaders. They had failed dismally, and Peter particularly. But Jesus had predicted their falling away and promised their restoration. Now he was moving to regather his flock and to assure Peter particularly that his failure was not the end. They they all were to come to Galilee where it all began. And the promise was that they would see him there just as he told them. The resurrection is difficult to believe. I wonder if in a sense as Christians we say we believe it in our heads but don't really believe it in our hearts, meaning it's not really a conviction that shapes our thoughts and our responses and our hopes. What we may not realize is that it's impossible to faithfully follow Jesus, faithfully follow Jesus Sorry, without a conviction about the resurrection. Why would I say that? Because it's the resurrection that demonstrates that Jesus's words are true and can be fully trusted. Think about it. In this gospel, Jesus has said some astonishing things. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. I mean, who can talk that way? Yet chief among these astonishing things was the claim that he would rise from the dead. Jesus has also said some very expensive things. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's sake will save it. Living by Jesus' word is going to cost us big time. If deep down, you're not sure whether Jesus is really alive, when the going gets tough, you're going to have nagging doubts about whether his word can be trusted and whether following him is worth it. In fact, losing sight of the reality of the resurrection leaves us in a similarly vulnerable state. So, when we just start to live our lives and we're going through the motions and we're chasing the things which are right in front of us, we're in severe danger because this world is passing away. That's why it's good for us to gaze at the resurrection. And to remind ourselves and each other that Jesus is alive and that Jesus is leading us and promised to return to gather us. After hearing the message from the young man in white, the women respond not with their mouths but with their legs. The men did their running from Gethsemane and now the women will run from the empty tomb. And puzzlingly, this is the last scene in this gospel. So it's appropriate to call it, This Can't Be How It Ends. Let's read verse 8 again. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. The angel told the women the greatest news ever, beyond their wildest imaginations. But Mark's last word is not about celebration, but about fear and trembling. He doesn't tell us whether the women passed on the message. He doesn't tell us what happened in Galilee. Did the disciples meet the risen Jesus? What did he say to them? I mean, what happened next? Our final task in this journey of 55 sermons is to wrestle with this unusual ending. First, let's look carefully at what Mark says here. The response of the women here does not need to be seen in an overwhelmingly negative light. These same descriptions of fear, trembling, and astonishment are used by Mark to describe situations where people saw Jesus' powerful miracles. The women were all awestruck. They weren't petrified. And that would be an appropriate response to the greatest of miracles, wouldn't it? That would be an appropriate response to the resurrection. Even the troubling statement that they said nothing to anyone could indicate that in their amazement, they didn't share the news of Jesus' resurrection publicly, rather than that they didn't say anything to the disciples they were instructed to speak to. Mark has written that way about situations earlier in this gospel also. Yet we, we still must acknowledge that even if their response is appropriate, it is at the very least incomplete. It's not the response we're looking for. So what possible reason could Mark have for ending in this way? One of the things we need to acknowledge is that this ending, while suspenseful, is not truly a cliffhanger. Now, I appreciate a good cliffhanger. Uh, My son Dominic and I are big-time Marvel fans, so we've been watching their latest offering, Hawkeye. Uh, It's okay so far, you know, nothing to write home about at this point, a few episodes in. But Dominic came running into my room earlier this week. I'm trying to train him not to spoil things when I haven't watched them yet, you know, but... Sometimes he'll be enthusiastic and he runs into the room and he's like, I can't believe they ended that episode that way. At least that was all he said. So I was prepared for a cliffhanger, but I didn't feel like he had given me details as he often does. He'll just tell me the whole story. And I'm like, oh my word. I'd like to watch this, you know. But you see, cliffhangers don't work when you oh, oh, uh, sorry, cliffhangers work, sorry, when you don't know what's going to happen next. But Mark's original audience already knew what happened next. They knew that the women told the disciples what the angels said. They knew that over the, the, the next several weeks, Jesus, the, the risen Christ appeared to Peter and the twelve and, and, and at one point to hundreds of followers of Jesus gathered together. They probably knew some of those brothers and sisters personally. They knew that Jesus had commissioned the disciples to continue the mission of proclaiming the kingdom of God, calling people to repentance and faith their church was a part of the fruit of that mission. The real question isn't what happened next, it's what happens next. What Mark is doing is prompting his readers to respond to this gospel. From his very first line, Mark has written to tell us the good news of Jesus and to call us to follow him. It makes sense to me that this gospel does not resolve in a way that brings us out of our seats, just applauding this wonderful story with a neat resolution, but rather brings us to the edge of our seats, leaning into a story that is clearly unfinished, one we are invited to participate in. To my mind, a gospel account like this would be incomplete if it did not provocatively call us, the readers, to action. As one commentator says, this is the end of Mark's story because it is the beginning of discipleship. James Edwards, another writer, adds the conclusion to Mark's to the Gospel of Mark must be supplied, in other words, by each reader's response of faith. And here's the thing the question of or discipleship or response in faith is not one that we answer once. It's not like a one time sign up for membership in a club. It's an ongoing commitment to the costly road of following Jesus. It's daily repentance and faith, turning from sin and self, turning to Jesus and his commands and promises and trusting in him. So the conclusion we must apply to the gospel is in itself an ongoing story that we must faithfully live and faithfully pass on to the next generation of discipleships. I hear that, amen. Come on. In a very real sense, the whole gospel of Mark is the beginning of the good news, a story that ends only when the Son of Man returns on the clouds with great power and glory to gather his elect and to judge the world as he promised. Now, if you have not yet begun the journey of discipleship, God is calling out to you today through the account of the resurrection. Acts 17, 30 and 31 says, The times of ignorance God overlooked... But now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. The resurrection means that Jesus' promise that he will return as the judge of the world is guaranteed. He died to take the judgment we deserved, and he was raised to a brand new unending life that we will share if we turn from our self-determination and trust in him. Jesus, who was crucified, rose again demonstrating that his word can be fully trusted. Mark has carefully authenticated the claim that Jesus, who died on the cross, rose from the dead, presenting many witnesses and a story so unimpressive, it could not have been made up. Jesus' resurrection vindicates his claim to be God's chosen king, the Son of God, and proves that every word he spoke will show itself to be true. So, we are each left with the question, what happens next? Jesus proclaimed the arrival of the kingdom of God, and in his miraculous ministry demonstrated that he was the long-awaited king in whose kingdom there will be no sickness, no threat, no lack, no death. He walked the path of submission to God and service to others, and he beckons us to follow him. Will you embrace this path of self denial and servanthood, identifying yourself with a misunderstood and and maligned Messiah? Will you embrace the lifelong walk of repentance and faith? Will you listen to him and trust his promises? Will you embrace the family that he has called to himself and died to ransom? Will you forgive them when they sin against you and serve them, pursuing last place? Will you embrace Jesus' compassion for sinners, sufferers, and outcasts? Will you own the mission to bring the good news of Jesus to those around you and to all nations? If you will come after Jesus, you'll find that the King who calls you will carry you. He will sustain you in this long obedience in the same direction. And you'll see that the certainty of the mission of the kingdom of God does not rest on the quality of the disciples' call to that mission. It rests on the certainty of the promises of our resurrected King. May God grant us grace to follow the Son as we trust in him. Let's pray. You have just listened to a message by Joel Bain the lead pastor at Grace Family Church in St. Catherine, Jamaica. To learn more about Grace Family Church, visit gracefam.church.